And you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9. So we're starting a new sermon, although it's not a new sermon uh, series. It's an old sermon series. We finished up around March of last year with 1 Samuel chapter 8. And I spent most of uh, last year in the New Testament looking at Colossians, and then we did that series on uh, the creeds of the church, uh, and then uh, we finished up with the parables in uh, chapter 13 of Matthew, uh, and what I want to do is balance out all that New Testament with some of the Old Testament. Uh, if it were up to me, I would spend all the time in the Old Testament, but Buddy reminds me that sometimes I have to go to the New Testament, and so uh, for a few weeks, uh, possibly until March or April, We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 9 through 15. Now today, if uh, if we could, uh, really this section of 1 Samuel chapter 9 really goes through about the middle of uh, chapter 10. Uh, For the sake of time, I'm not going to preach uh, that sermon uh, today. What I want to do is I'm going to do a very uh, short review so that we have enough time for the Lord's Supper here in a minute. Uh, Just reminding you the story of 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 8. It's a new year, it's a continuation of an old series. Uh, There is a series that's out there, a television series called True Detective. Uh, And uh, I haven't seen season 2 of True Detective, but the tagline for this series is... We get the world we deserve. We get the world we deserve. Now the creators, the makers, the writers, and everyone involved in this series is pushing a specific worldview. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed this, but more and more uh, writers and creators of television shows and movies are not simply satisfied with entertaining us. They've actually never been satisfied with that. But more and more, they're actually pushing a worldview. They're pushing an agenda. They're trying to teach us something. And in this season of True Detective, they're pushing this worldview out there that if something bad happens, it's because you deserve it. That's the way the world works. In common parlance, in common tongue, we call this karma. This is from Eastern philosophy. That... You, if anything happens to you, you deserve it. You must have done something bad. And, and this is a dark and depressing worldview. Um, maybe you don't live in that kind of world where everything happens for a reason because you deserve it. But most people live in this world. And you need to know that most people adopt this worldview. That you get the world you deserve. In this world, justice is cold. There's no such thing as grace or mercy because everything is directed by an impersonal force that's simply trying to balance out the world. You can see that in the Star Wars movies. You can see it all over our culture. And ultimately it it says this, when something bad happens, it's your fault. It's a cold, cold worldview. And actually I think 1 Samuel, the entire book, preaches and teaches against that worldview and against that understanding 
of the way the world works. Because the aim of 1 Samuel is to teach us that our sovereign and gracious and good God does not treat us, his people, as we deserve. He treats us according to his grace and mercy. And so in this, we're going to read actually verses, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And we're going to get a slight glimpse into the king that God gives his people. Uh, but then we're going to go back and review why it is that they get this king. So let me read this for us. Chapter 9 of 1 Samuel, verses 1 and 2. Hear God's good and kind word to you this morning. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. And from the shoulders, his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Okay, another tall man in the scriptures who's going to be a massive failure. Let me just get that out there. Okay. Let me pray for us and ask for the Lord's help in understanding his word. Pray with me. Our great God and Father, we thank you for this word that you've given us. And we thank you that you do not treat us as we deserve, but you treat us according to your promised plan of redemption and salvation accomplished for us in your Son, Jesus Christ, given to us by the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that you would help us to cling to your grace and mercy and not to our works, not to what we do. And we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. So I want to I want you to see chapters one through eight very quickly uh, in basically two categories. First of all, the first category, the first point of the sermon, and there's only going to be two: human dysfunction. Human dysfunction. Beginning at First Samuel chapter one. Turn back there real quick as we do this survey. And again, I, I want to do this very quickly. We see human d- dysfunction. Presented to us through 1 Samuel uh, in three ways. First of all, we see family dysfunction in chapter 1. We start off with this family, very common thing, something we all understand. Here's a man, Elkanah, and we're given his genealogy in uh, the first few verses there. Uh, And then we're told that he's married to his beloved wife, Hannah. But also, he's married to another woman, and that should raise uh, our, our, our antenna up and start recognizing, well, something's wrong. This isn't God's plan for his people. A man should be married to one woman, and yet here he is. He's married to Hannah and another woman, uh, Peniah. And we're actually told that Hannah is barren. She doesn't have children, but Peniah has all of these children and there's discord in the family. Elkanah, Paniah, and Hannah are the main characters here at the beginning. Uh, what we learn here in chapter 1 is that uh, 
Even though Elkanah loved Hannah and preferred her, he wanted to be married to her. He needed to have heirs for his line to continue. And so his sinful response, instead of trusting the Lord and trusting him either to not give him children or to provide children in a way that he could not see, he took another woman to be his wife, and that created all sorts of dysfunction in the family. I won't go through and read 1 Samuel, but uh, Paniah constantly badgered Hannah and rubbed it in her face that she could not have children, and it was a constant source of discord and dysfunction in the family. And so year after year, Hannah's heart broke over and over and over as she suffered through this of not having children and all of these things. And Elkanah, a loving husband, but didn't understand his wife's struggle. Uh, The children are raised in this kind of atmosphere where uh, they're making fun of Hannah as well, and there's all of this dysfunction that's happening in the family. Uh, And let me just relate it to us real quick. Let me relate it to our time as well. This is a relevant passage for us. Because if all of us were to have our family lives exposed to everyone else here, what would we find? We would find husbands that are derelict of their duties as husband, that have created dysfunction in their family. We have wives who either are submissive to their husbands, even though they are derelict of their duties, or wives that are not submissive to their husbands. That creates all sorts of other dysfunction. And whenever you look at the children in our families as well, you look at them and their sinful response because their parents respond sinfully and not in faith to God. The story of 1 Samuel is a relevant story for us because all of us, dads, you know this. I've been a dad for 10 months. I mean, there's not a morning where I wake up and I don't remember the things that happened the day before and go, gosh, I blew it as a father. Every man in here knows that. Some of you have blown it in major ways in your life. Some of you are not just derelict of your duties, but you have been terrible fathers, terrible husbands. You have not responded in faithfulness to God, but you have responded in sin. This church is full of men who are just like Elkanah. This is us. This church is full of people who are women who are like Paniah who do not respond in faith to God. This is the story of our families. Dysfunction. Things that do not work the way that they should. So first of all, we see human dysfunction in our families in 1 Samuel and today. Secondly, we see religious dysfunction. You can turn over a few pages and uh, down toward the middle of chapter 2. You see, uh, in my Bible, it actually gives a nice title, Eli's Worthless Sons. Eli is the leader of the religion of the Jews. He is the priest, the high priest for the Jewish people. And Eli has sons, uh, Hophni and Phinehas. So we have three more characters that take the center stage here. Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. Eli's the priest, Hophni and Phinehas are there. They're all in a family as well. And yet they are the religious leaders of the day. And what do we see? We see that because Hophni and Phinehas are the religious leaders of the day, they corrupt, according to their nature, worship. 
they do not worship Yahweh the way that he should. We actually find that they are philanderers sleeping around with women in uh, the temple or in the tabernacle of God. We see that they are stealing the sacrifices away from God. They are perverting the religious worship of the day. Uh, uh, even further than that, what you see with the people in uh, chapter 6 is they decide, or chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6. All through those chapters, what you see is the people decide that they are going to use Yahweh to their ends. And what do they do? They go and grab the ark and they take it into battle against the Philistines. And they think that if we have the Lord's uh, throne, if we have him in our midst, we can use him and force him to give us victory against the Philistines. And what happens, the Ark of the Covenant gets stolen, it gets taken into captivity, and the people of God are routed. Instead of worshiping Yahweh and seeing themselves as his servants, they try to make Yahweh their servants and say, you will bow to our will. So we see religious dysfunction in a couple of ways. We see evil religious leaders who are perverting the worship of God. And then also we see a people who are bent on using Yahweh for their ends. Kind of treating Yahweh like he's the great grandpa in the sky. And all you have to do is ask him for something and he'll give it to you. Well, this is a reflection on us as well. Uh, the church of Jesus Christ, even today... Uh, all of those churches that are out there that are called by the name of Jesus, many of them are filled with religious leaders that pervert the worship of God. They do things according not to the way that he has given us in his word, but to their fancies. And they say, I'm going to do things according to how I want them. A few years ago, living in Jackson, Mississippi, a scandal broke out because one pastor decided that he could marry any woman that he wanted to and decided that he was going to marry all of the single women in the church, in the Christian church in Jackson, Mississippi. A pastor decided that he had the right to marry multiple women. Some of them were as young as 13 years old. And the scandal of it was that no one in the church blinked an eye and they say, yes, whatever the pastor wants. He gets. This is the nature of the American church today. We are replete with terrible leaders who fail to point us to the gospel of Jesus Christ, back to the word of God. Now, it's easy for me to point the finger out there and to point out all the theological problems and all the issues in other churches, but it's much harder to point out the theological problems in our own church the coldness that you and I have toward God. How we come into worship with a lackadaisical attitude, not realizing that the God of heaven and earth who created all things, who all things in the world bow down and worship to, we meet with him on Sunday morning for an hour and we come in and, eh, no big deal. What is your heart like in worship? And again, that's me pointing at you. What is my heart like in worship? A few weeks ago, I told Kenny this. I preached a very hard sermon where I called you adulterers and whores. That's a hard thing to say to a congregation. And I looked at you and I said that. And I said, you know what I should have said? You're not just the ones that are adulterers and whores. Guess what? I am too. My heart is cold toward God. 
And the reality is that the dysfunction that happens in our religious worship starts here with me and my heart. We need to take ownership and responsibility of our sin in this way. Uh, And then the third thing, very quickly, we see political dysfunction. Um, In chapter 8, very clearly, the people, they come to Samuel when he's old and they say, Give us a king like the nations. And God says, They haven't rejected you, Samuel, as their king. They've rejected me as their king. The people reject Yahweh. The people who have been sustained and protected and provided for by His gracious hand, even though they have not deserved it, they have rejected Him as their king. And they furthermore reject Samuel as the king's representative. To make that relevant for us, we reject Yahweh as our king on a daily basis when we sin against Him. When we decide we know what's best. Furthermore, in a political realm, we reject Yahweh as king when we are worried about who the governor of Louisiana is. We reject Yahweh as king whenever we worry about who the next president of the United States is going to be. I'm not saying we don't need to be responsible in voting or finding out what the issues are and making sure and doing everything that we can to vote in the right man according to what the scriptures say. But I am saying when we worry about the way things are happening in this world, we forget that this world is not the world that we were made for. When we worry and are anxious about all of the things that happen because who's in office, we reject Yahweh as our king. Whether it's a new governor, a new president, a new mayor, a new city council member, whatever it is. Here's the picture that I want, you, that I want to paint for you. We see human dysfunction in our families, in our religious worship, in our political and civil duties and responsibilities. This is us. And the book of 1 Samuel paints a picture of who we are before God. Now what should Yahweh do because that's who we are? What should he do according to what justice demands? He should wipe us off the face of the earth. He should pour out His wrath on us because we deserve His wrath. And yet all through the book of 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 8, instead of wiping His people out, God gives, and this is the second point, divine grace. We've seen human dysfunction and now we see divine grace. The first one, God's grace to families. Turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 1. God's grace to families. Elkanah made a mess of his family. Paniah and Hannah are there. They're in a mess. Everything is a mess. And what does God do? He promises to Hannah to give Samuel a baby, a child. Probably after she's passed the age of having children, he gives Samuel. And not only that, this is what we read in chapter 2. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two more daughters. And the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Into the mess of the dysfunction of our family. For God's people, Yahweh is at work. This is good news for us. This is God's grace to us. To terrible fathers. 
to mothers who are horrible, to children who are disobedient. God is at work to redeem us from ourselves and our sin. God is faithful to his promises even when we show a lack of faith and are faithless to him. God isn't done with our families. That's good news, isn't it? God is not done with your family. It's not over. He's still at work. Hope in him. Trust in him for your children, for your grandchildren, for your great-grandchildren, your great-great-grandchildren. Trust in him for your family. Secondly, we see God's grace to his church. We saw dysfunction in religious worship. Terrible leaders. The good news is the Lord works in his church, even in the midst of terrible leaders. He is always calling a people to himself. And here in uh, 1 Samuel chapters 4, 5, and 6, when things look the bleakest in terms of worship, what does Yahweh do? He uses his people's faithlessness for their redemption. The Ark of the Covenant goes into the area of Philistia. And God himself goes up against Dagon. And what happens? Dagon falls on his face. He breaks in half. He cannot stand to, to be in the presence of Yahweh. The demon god, Dagon, cannot stand. And then what happens? God strikes them hilariously. With hemorrhoids, okay? He humiliates the Philistines. God is using even our faithlessness to bring about redemption for his people. That is not an excuse to be faithless. That is not an excuse to be silly or irreverent in our worship. But it's to hope that even when we mess up, even when we are faithless, God is at work redeeming us, calling us to himself, sanctifying us according to his good pleasure. And that's the story that we see in 1 Samuel. Ultimately, that all uh, leads up to chapter 7, when God's people are saved when the lamb is slain. And that's the story of the Bible. God's people are saved when the lamb is slain. I'll encourage you to go back and read chapter 7 this afternoon. Finally, we see God's grace, even to the people wanting a different leader, a different king. Once again, go to chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, very quickly. We're, given, we're told that the next king of Israel is going to be a Benjamite, the son of Kish. Uh, Kish was a good man, That where it says a man of wealth, in, uh, at the end of verse 1, that's a terrible translation. He isn't merely a man of wealth, although he probably was a man of great wealth. He was a man of valor. He was a mighty warrior. There's only maybe two or four men, depending on how you translate this, that are called that in all of the Bible. Josh was one of them. Kish was a great man, and he had a son. Saul is not going to be a great king. He is going to be a massive failure but even in the midst of his massive failure, the people want a king. God gives them a king, but he doesn't give them the king they deserve. Even Saul is better than they deserve, and that's how it is for us as well. For God's people, we never get what we deserve. By God's grace, we never fully experience his wrath, 
By his grace, we experience his discipline for a time. And through that discipline, he calls us back to himself, but we don't experience his full wrath. And furthermore, we can be encouraged because this side of glory, God provides handsome and tall men to be our leaders sometimes. That's good news for us. In conclusion, here's what I want you to be. I haven't done a full exegesis of this passage. We'll look a little bit closer at it next week. But I want you to be encouraged nonetheless. God is at work and he is not finished with our families, with our worship and our church, and with our politics. He is not finished. The call here is to put your faith in the Lord, not in yourself. Do not trust in you or in princes. Trust in your great king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see in the Lord's Supper, this is the greatest proof of God's grace and mercy to us. Instead of being a king that takes and takes and takes and takes and demands everything from us, our great king, the Lord Jesus Christ, what did he do? He gave and gave and gave, even to the point of shedding his blood on the cross so that we can be found in him acceptable Fully loved, fully cherished. He is the king that gives and gives and gives. And in this supper, we are called and invited to experience that grace once again. Let me pray for us and ask for the Lord's help in experiencing and understanding and knowing his great grace. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for giving us this word, and even as it's been a review, we thank you for reminding us that though we are miserable failures, you are always at work in us, redeeming us, sanctifying us, your people, according to your good pleasure. Father, we thank you that you are the one that we can trust in, and that we don't have to trust in ourselves. We pray that as we go to this supper, that we would understand what it means to be your children, called by your grace, redeemed by your mercy, uh, given this great promise, the guarantee of the Holy Spirit living inside of us, reminding us that we are your children. We pray that we would find joy in this meal, even as you meet with us. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. As the elders come forward to prepare the table... Let me read to you the words of institution from Mark. Mark chapter 14, verses 22 through 25. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them. And he said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink it again, drink again of the fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God.